Help us make the sleepy bookshelf even better for you. You can vote on which books I should read at sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. This evening, we're returning to journey to the center of the earth. But before we begin, take a moment here to recenter and relax. Start with a nice big stretch, really drawing your attention to the muscles in your legs and back. Let them know that they can rest after a day of hard work. To clear your mind, let's take a deep breath in, collecting together all your thoughts and worries from the day. And when you exhale, I want you to audibly sigh them away. Last time, Harry and the professor were retreating from the woods where they had just seen what appeared to be a huge human man. As they were making their way back to Hans and the raft, Harry found a discarded dagger in the sand. On further inspection, they located an inscription just above a hidden tunnel in the rock face. It read, A.S. Anna Sacknusum. Deciding this must be a direction from the alchemist and elated with anticipation, they ran back to hands to fetch the raft. Harry was so eager to enter the tunnel He could barely wait, but not long after they began, they hit a wall with no way around. Dismayed but determined, Harry suggested they use the gunpowder still remaining from the shipwreck to blast the rock to pieces. They created their explosives with the plan that Harry would light the match and give himself ten minutes to get on board the raft, where hands would row them far enough out to sea to be safe from the blast. After the explosion, the sea swelled, and then the water and the raft were sucked into the opening in the rock. The three travelers held on tightly, as they were plunged into darkness. Once the raft steadied, but was still moving quickly through the tunnel, Hans lit a torch, and Harry noted that all their food supplies were now missing. And so, we continue with our story tonight. Harry resigned to starvation, and the adventurers plummeting aboard their raft to who knows where. So, lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 40 The Ape Gigants It is difficult for me to determine what was the real time, but I should suppose after calculation that it must have been ten at night. I lay in a stupor, a half-dream, during which I saw visions of astounding character Monsters of the deep were side by side with the almighty elephantine shepherd. 
gigantic fish and animals seemed to form strange conjunctions. The raft took a sudden turn, whirled round, entered another tunnel, this time illumined in a most singular manner. The roof was formed of porous stalactite through which a moonlit vapor appeared to pass, casting its brilliant light upon our gaunt and haggard figures. The light increased as we advanced while the roof ascended, until, at last, we were once more in a kind of water cavern, the lofty dome of which disappeared in a luminous cloud. A rugged cavern of small extent appeared to offer a halting place for our weary bodies. My uncle and the guide moved as men in a dream. I was afraid to waken them, knowing the danger of such a sudden start. I seated myself beside them to watch. As I did so, I became aware of something moving in the distance which at once fascinated my eyes. It was floating, apparently, upon the surface of the water, advancing by means of what at first appeared to be paddles. I looked with glaring eyes. One glance told me it was something monstrous. But what? It was the great shark crocodile of the early writers on geology, about the size of an ordinary whale with hideous jaws and two gigantic eyes. It advanced, its eyes fixed on me with terrible sternness. Some indefinite warning told me that it had marked me for its own. I attempted to rise, to escape, no matter where, but my knees shook under me. My limbs trembled violently. I almost lost my senses, and still the mighty monster advanced. My uncle and the guide made no effort to save themselves. With a strange noise like none other I have ever heard, the beast came on. His jaws were at least seven feet apart, and his distended mouth looked large enough to have swallowed a boat full of men. We were about ten feet distance when I discovered that much as his body resembled that of a crocodile, his mouth was wholly that of a shark. His twofold nature now became apparent. To snatch us up at a mouthful, it was necessary for him to turn on his back, which notion necessarily caused his legs to kick up helplessly in the air. I actually laughed, even in the very jaws of death. But next minute, with a wild cry, I darted away into the interior of the cave, leaving my unhappy comrades to their fate. This cavern was deep and dreary. After about a hundred yards, I paused and looked around. The whole floor, composed of sand and malachite, was strewn with bones, freshly gnawed bones of reptiles and fish with a mixture of mammalia. My very soul grew sick as my body shuddered with horror. I had truly, according to the old proverb, fallen out of the frying pan into the fire. 
some beast larger and more ferocious than even the shark crocodile inhabited this den. What could I do? The mouth of the cave was guarded by one ferocious monster. The interior was inhabited by something too hideous to contemplate. Flight was impossible. Only one resource remained, and that was to find some small hiding place to which the fearful denizens of the cavern could not penetrate. I gazed wildly around, and at last discovered a fissure in the rock to which I rushed in in the hope of recovering my scattered senses. Crouching down, I waited, shivering as in a fit. No man is brave in presence of an earthquake, or a bustling boiler, or an exploding torpedo. I could not be expected to feel much courage in the presence of the fearful fate that appeared to await me. An hour passed. I heard all the time a strange rumbling outside the cave. What was the fate of my unhappy companions? It was impossible for me to pause to inquire. My own wretched existence was all I could think of. Suddenly, a groaning, as of fifty bears in a fight, fell upon my ears. Hisses, spitting, moaning, hideous to hear. And then I saw something. Never were ages to pass over my head shall I forget the horrible apparition. It was the ape gigants. Fourteen feet high, covered with coarse hair of a blackish brown, the hair on the arms from the shoulder to the elbow joints pointing downwards, while that from the wrist to the elbow pointed upwards. It advanced, its arms were as long as its body, while its legs were prodigious. It had thick, long and sharply pointed teeth, like a mammoth saw. It struck its breast as it came on, smelling and sniffing, reminding me of the stories we read in our early childhood of giants who ate the flesh of men and little children. Suddenly, it stopped. My heart beat wildly, for I was conscious that, somehow or other, the fearful monster had smelled me out and was peering about with his hideous eyes to try and discover my whereabouts. My reading, which as a rule is a blessing, but which on this occasion seemed momentarily to prove a curse, told me the real truth. It was the ape gigants, the antediluvian gorilla. He glared wildly about, seeking something, doubtless myself. I gave myself up for lost. No hope of safety or escape seemed to remain. At this moment, just as my eyes appeared to close in death, there came a strange noise from the entrance of the cave. Turning, the gorilla evidently recognized some enemy more worthy of his prodigious size and strength. It was the huge shark crocodile, which perhaps, having disposed of my friends, was coming in search of further prey. The gorilla placed himself on the defensive, and clutching a bone some seven or eight feet in length, a 
a perfect club, aimed a deadly blow at the hideous beast, which reared upwards and fell with all its weight upon its adversary. A terrible combat, the details of which it is impossible to give, now ensued. The struggle was awful and ferocious. I, however, did not wait to witness the result. Regarding myself as the object of contention, I determined to remove from the presence of the victor. I slid down from my hiding place and reached the ground, and gliding against the wall, I strove to gain the open mouth of the cavern. But I had not taken many steps when the fearful clamor ceased to be followed by a mumbling and groaning which appeared to be indicative of victory. I looked back and saw the huge ape coming after me with glaring eyes, with dilated nostrils that gave forth two columns of heated vapor. I could feel his hot and fetid breath on my neck, and with a horrid jump, awoke from my nightmare sleep. Yes, it was all a dream. I was still on the raft with my uncle and the guide. The relief was not instantaneous, for under the influence of the hideous nightmare, my senses had become numbed. After a while, however, my feelings were tranquilized. The first of my perceptions which returned in full force was that of hearing. I listened with acute and attentive ears. All was still as death. All I comprehended was silence. To the roaring of the waters which had filled the gallery with awful reverberations, succeeded perfect peace. After some time, my uncle spoke in a low and scarcely audible tone. Harry, my boy, where are you? I'm here, was my faint rejoinder. Well, don't you see what has happened? said he. We are going upwards. My dear uncle, what can you mean? was my half delirious reply. Yes, I tell you we are ascending rapidly, he answered. Our downward journey is quite checked. I held out my hand, and after some little difficulty, succeeded in touching the wall. We were ascending with extraordinary rapidity. The torch, said the professor, it must be lighted. Hans, the guide, after many vain efforts, at last succeeded in lighting it, and the flame, having now nothing to prevent its burning, shed a tolerably clear light we were enabled to form an approximate idea of the truth. It is just as I thought, said my uncle, after a moment or two of silent attention. We are in the narrow well, about four fathoms square. The waters of the great inland sea, having reached the bottom of the gulf, are now forcing themselves up the mighty shaft. As a natural consequence, we are being cast upon the summit of the waters. That I can see, was my lugubrious reply. But where will this shaft end? And to what fall are we likely to be exposed? Of that I am as ignorant as yourself said he. 
All I know is that we should be prepared for the worst. We are going up at a fearfully rapid rate. As far as I can judge, we are ascending at a rate of two fathoms a second, of 120 fathoms a minute, or rather more than three and a half leagues an hour. At this rate, our fate will soon be a matter of certainty. No doubt of it, was my reply. The great concern I have now, however, is to know whether this shaft has any issue. It may end in a granite roof, in which case we shall be suffocated by compressed air or dashed to atoms against the top. I fancy already that the air is beginning to be close and condensed. I have difficulty in breathing. This might be fancy, or it might be the effect of our rapid motion, but I certainly felt a great oppression of the chest. Harry, said the professor, I do believe that the situation is, to a certain extent, desperate. There remain, however, many chances of ultimate safety, and I have, in my own mind, been revolving them over during your heavy but agitated sleep. I have come to this logical conclusion. Whereas we may at any moment perish, so at any moment we may be saved. We need, therefore, to prepare ourselves for whatever may turn up in the great chapter of accidents. But what would you have us do? I asked. Are we not utterly helpless? No, my uncle replied. While there is life, there is hope. At all events, there is one thing we can do. Eat, and thus obtain strength to face victory or death. As he spoke, I looked at my uncle with a haggard glance. I had put off the fatal communication as long as possible. It was now forced upon me, and I must tell him the truth. Still, I hesitated. Eat, I said in a deprecating tone, as if there were no hurry. Yes, and at once. I feel half-starved, he said, rubbing his yellow and shivering hands together. And turning round to the guide, he spoke some hearty, cheering words, as I judged from his tone in Danish. Hans shook his head in a terribly significant manner. I tried to look unconcerned. What? asked the professor. You do not mean to say that all our provisions are lost? Yes, was my lowly spoken reply as I held out something in my hand. This morsel of dried meat is all that remains for us three. My uncle gazed at me as if he could not fully appreciate the meaning of my words. The blow seemed to stun him by its severity. I allowed him to reflect for some moments. Well, said I after a short pause, what do you think now? Is there any chance of our escaping from our horrible subterranean dangers? Are we not doomed to perish in the great hollows of the center of the earth? But my pertinent questions brought no answer. My uncle either heard me not or appeared not to do so. And in this way, a whole hour passed. Neither of us cared to speak. For myself, I began to feel the most fearful and devouring hunger. 
My companions doubtless felt the same horrible tortures, but neither of them would touch the wretched morsel of meat that remained. It lay there, a last remnant of our great preparations for the mad and senseless journey. I looked back with wonderment to my own folly. Fully was I aware that despite his enthusiasm and the ever-to-be-hated scroll of Sack Newsome, my uncle should never have started on his perilous voyage. What memories of the happy past, what provisions of the horrible future now filled my brain. Chapter 41 Hunger Hunger prolonged is temporary madness. The brain is at work without its required food, and the most fantastic notions fill the mind. Hitherto I had never known what hunger really meant. I was likely to understand it now. And yet, it was three months before I could tell my terrible story, as I thought it. As a boy, I used to make frequent excursions in the neighborhood of the professor's house. My uncle always acted on system, and he believed there should be a day of recreation. In consequence, I was always free to do as I liked on a Wednesday. Now, as I had a notion to combine the useful and the agreeable, my favorite pastime was birds nesting. I had one of the best collections of eggs in all the town. They were classified and under glass cases. There was a certain wood which, by rising at early morn and taking the cheap train, I could reach at eleven in the morning. Here I would botanize or geologize at my will. My uncle was always glad of specimens for his herbarium and stones to examine. When I had filled my wallet, I proceeded to search for nests. After about two hours of hard work, I one day sat down by a stream to eat my humble but copious lunch. How the remembrance of the spiced sausage, the wheaten loaf and the beer made my mouth water now. I would have given every prospect of worldly wealth for such a meal. But to my story... While seated thus at my leisure, I looked up at the ruins of an old castle at no great distance. It was the remains of a historical dwelling, ivy-clad and now falling to pieces. While looking, I saw two eagles circling about the summit of a lofty tower. I soon became satisfied that there was a nest. Now in all my collection, I lacked eggs of the native eagle and the large owl. My mind was made up. I would reach the summit of that tower or perish in the attempt. I went nearer and surveyed the ruins. The old staircase years before had fallen in. The outer walls were, however, intact. There was no chance of going that way unless I looked to the ivy solely for support. This was, as I soon found out, futile. There remained the chimney, which still went up to the top and had once served to carry off the smoke from every story of the tower. Up this I determined to venture. 
it was narrow, rough, and therefore more easily climbed. I took off my coat and crept into the chimney. Looking up, I saw a small, light opening proclaiming the summit of the chimney. Up, up I went, for some time using my hands and knees after the fashion of a chimney sweep. It was slow work, but there being continual projections, the task was comparatively easy. In this way, I reached halfway. The chimney now became narrower. The atmosphere was close, and at last, to end the matter, I stuck fast. I could ascend no higher. There could be no doubt of this, and there remained no resource but to descend and give up my glorious prey in despair. I yielded to fate and endeavoured to descend, but I could not move. Some unseen and mysterious obstacle intervened and stopped me. In an instant, the full horror of my situation seized me. I was unable to move either way and was doomed to a terrible and horrible death that of starvation. In a boy's mind, however, there is an extraordinary amount of elasticity and hope, and I began to think of all sorts of plans to escape my gloomy fate. In the first place, I required no food just at present, having had an excellent meal and was, therefore, allowed time for reflection. My first thought was to try and move the mortar with my hand. Had I possessed a knife, something might have been done, but that useful instrument I had left in my coat pocket. I soon found that all efforts of this kind were vain and useless, that all I could hope to do was to wriggle downwards. But though I jerked and struggled and strove to turn, it was all in vain. I could not move an inch, one way or the other, and time flew rapidly by. My early rising probably contributed to the fact that I felt sleepy, and gradually gave way to the sensation of drowsiness. I slept and awoke in darkness, ravenously hungry. Night had come, and still I could not move. I was tight-bound and did not succeed in changing my position an inch. I groaned aloud. Never since the days of my happy childhood, when it was a hardship to go from meal to meal without eating, had I really experienced hunger. The sensation was as novel as it was painful. I began now to lose my head and to scream and cry out in my agony. Something appeared startled by my noise. It was a harmless lizard, but it appeared to me a loathsome reptile. Again, I made the old ruins resound with my cries, and finally so exhausted myself that I fainted. How long I lay in a kind of trance or sleep I cannot say, but when again I recovered consciousness, it was day. How ill I felt, how hunger still gnawed at me, it would be hard to say. I was too weak to scream now, far too weak to struggle. Suddenly, 
I was startled by a roar. Are you there, Harry? said the voice of my uncle. I could only faintly respond, but I also made a desperate effort to turn. Some mortar fell. To this I owed my being discovered. When the search took place, it was easily seen that mortar and small pieces of stone had recently fallen from above, hence my uncle's cry. Be calm, he said. If we pull down the whole ruin, you shall be saved. They were delicious words, but I had little hope. Soon after, however, about a quarter of an hour later, I heard a voice above me at one of the upper fireplaces. Are you below or above? The voice said. Below, was my reply. In an instant, a basket was lowered with milk, a biscuit, and an egg. My uncle was fearful to be too ready with his supply of food. I drank the milk first, for thirst had nearly deadened hunger. I then, much refreshed, ate my bread and hard egg. They were now at work at the wall. I could hear a pickaxe. Wishing to escape all danger from this terrible weapon, I made a desperate struggle, and the belt, which surrounded my waist, and which had been hitched on a stone, gave way. I was free, and only escaped falling down by a rapid motion of my hands and knees. In ten minutes more, I was in my uncle's arms, after being two days and nights in that horrible prison. My occasional delirium prevented me from counting time. I was weeks recovering from that awful adventure. And yet, what was that to the adventure I now endured? After dreaming for some time and thinking of this and other matters, I once more looked around me. We were still ascending with fearful rapidity. Every now and then the air appeared to check our respiration as it does that of aeronauts when the ascension of the balloon is too rapid. But if they feel a degree of cold in proportion to the elevation they attain in the atmosphere, we experienced quite a contrary effect the heat began to increase in a most threatening and exceptional manner. I cannot tell exactly the mean, but I think it must have reached 122 degrees Fahrenheit. What was the meaning of this extraordinary change in the temperature? Until now, or the peculiar conditions of refractory rocks, of electricity, of magnetism, had modified the general laws of nature and had created for us a moderate temperature, for the theory of the central fire remained, in my eyes, the only explainable one. Were we then, going to reach a position in which these phenomena were to be carried out in all their rigor and in which the heat would reduce the rocks to a state of fusion. Such was my not unnatural fear, and I did not conceal the fact from my uncle. My way of doing so might be cold and heartless, but I could not help it. If we are not drowned or smashed into pancakes, and if we do not die of starvation, 
we have the satisfaction of knowing that we must be burned alive, I told him. My uncle, in presence of this brusque attack, simply shrugged his shoulders and resumed his reflections, whatever they might be. An hour passed away, and except that there was a slight increase in the temperature, no incident modified the situation. My uncle, at last, of his own accord, broke the silence. Well, Harry, my boy, he said in a cheerful way, we must make up our minds. Make up our minds to what? I asked in considerable surprise. Well, to something, he replied. We must, at whatever risk, recruit our physical strength. If we make the fatal mistake of husbanding our little remnant of food, we may probably prolong our wretched existence a few hours. We shall remain weak to the end. Yes, I said, to the end. That, however, will not keep us long waiting. Well, only let a chance of safety present itself. Only allow that moment of action be necessary, he went on. Where shall we find the means of action if we allow ourselves to be reduced to physical weakness by inanition? When this piece of meat is devoured, uncle, what hope will there remain unto us? I asked. None, my dear Harry, none, he replied. But will it do you any good to devour it with your eyes? You appeared to me to reason like one without will or decision, like being without energy. Then, said I, you do not mean to tell me that you have not lost all hope. Certainly not, replied the professor with consummate coolness. You mean to tell me, uncle, that we shall get out of this monstrous subterranean shaft, I asked. While there is life, there is hope, said he. I beg to assert, Harry, that as long as a man's heart beats, as long as a man's flesh quivers, I do not allow that being gifted with thought and will can allow himself to despair. What a nerve. The man placed in a position like that, which we occupied, must have been very brave to speak like this. Well, I said, what do you mean to do? Eat what remains of the food we have in our hands, he answered. Let us swallow the last crumb. It will be, heaven willing, our last repast. Well, never mind. Instead of being exhausted skeletons, we shall be men. True, said I in a despairing tone. Let us take our fill. We must, replied my uncle. Call it what you will. My uncle took a piece of the meat that remained and some crusts of biscuit which had escaped the wreck. He divided the whole into three parts. Each had one pound of food to last him as long as he remained in the interior of the earth. Each now acted in accordance with his own private character. My uncle, the professor, ate greedily, but evidently without appetite, eating simply from some mechanical motion. I put the food inside my lips, and hungry as I was, 
chewed my morsel without pleasure and without satisfaction. Hans, the guide, just as if he had been eiderdown hunting, swallowed every mouthful as though it were just a usual affair. He looked like a man equally prepared to enjoy superfluity or total want. Hans, in all probability, was no more used to starvation than ourselves, but his hardy nature had prepared him for many sufferings. He was prepared for anything. The fact was, Hans never troubled himself about much. He had undertaken to serve a certain man at so much per week, and no matter what evils befell his employer, or himself, he never found fault or grumbled so long as his wages were duly paid. Suddenly, my uncle roused himself. He had seen a smile on the face of our guide. I could not make it out. What is the matter? said my uncle. Shidem said the guide, producing a bottle of this precious fluid. We drank the gin. My uncle and myself will own to our dying day that hence we derived strength to exist until the last bitter moment. That precious bottle was in reality only half full, but under the circumstances, it was nectar. It took some minutes for myself and my uncle to form a decided opinion on the subject. The worthy professor swallowed about half a pint and did not seem to be able to drink any more. Very good, said Hans, swallowing nearly all that was left. Excellent said my uncle, with as much gusto as if he had just left the steps of the club at Hamburg. I had begun to feel as if there had been one gleam of hope. Now all thought of the future vanished. We had consumed our last ounce of food, and it was five o'clock in the morning. Chapter 42 The Volcanic Shaft Man's constitution is so peculiar that his health is purely a negative matter. No sooner is the rage of hunger appeased than it becomes difficult to comprehend the meaning of starvation. It is only when you suffer that you really understand As to anyone who has not endured privation having any notion of the matter, it is simply absurd. With us, after a long fast, some mouthfuls of bread and meat, a little moldy biscuit and salt beef triumphed over all our previous gloomy and saturnine thoughts. Nevertheless, After this repast, each gave way to his own reflections. I wondered what were those of Hans, the man of the extreme north, who was yet gifted with the resignation of a steady character. But the utmost stretch of the imagination would not allow me to realize the truth. As for my individual self, My thoughts had ceased to be anything but memories of the past and were all connected with that upper world which I should have never left. I saw it all now. The beautiful house in the Konigstrasse. My poor Gretchen. The good Martha. They all passed before my mind like visions of the past. Every time 
any of the lugubrious groanings which were to be distinguished in the hollows around fell upon my ears, I fancied I heard the distant murmur of the great cities above my head. As for my uncle, always thinking of his science, he examined the nature of the shaft by means of a torch. He closely examined the different strata, one above the other, in order to recognize his situation by a geological theory. This calculation, or rather this estimation, could by no means be anything but approximate. But a learned man, a philosopher, is nothing if not a philosopher when he keeps his ideas calm and collected, and certainly the professor possessed this quality to perfection. I heard him as I sat in silence, murmuring words of geological science. As I understood his object and his meaning, I could not but interest myself, despite my preoccupation in that terrible hour. Eruptive granite, he said to himself. We are still in the primitive epoch, but we are going up going up, still going up, but who knows? Who knows? Then he still hoped. He felt along the vertical sides of the shaft with his hand. After some few minutes, he would go on again in the following style. This is mica schist, siliceous mineral. Good again. This is the epoch of transition. At all events, we are close to them. What could the professor mean? Could he, by any conceivable means, measure the thickness of the crust of the earth suspended above our heads? Did he possess any possible means of making any approximation to this calculation. No, the manometer was wanting, and no summary estimation could take the place of it. And yet, as we progressed, the temperature increased in the most extraordinary degree, and I began to feel as if I were bathed in a hot and burning atmosphere. Never before had I felt anything like it. I could only compare it to the hot vapor from an iron foundry, when the liquid iron is in a state of ebullition and runs over. By degrees, and one after the other, Hans, my uncle, and myself had taken off our coats and waistcoats, They were unbearable. Even the slightest garment was not only uncomfortable, but the cause of extreme suffering. Are we ascending to a living fire? I asked, when, to my horror and astonishment, the heat became greater than before. No, no, said my uncle. It is simply impossible quite impossible. And yet, said I, touching the side of the shaft with my naked hand, this wall is literally burning. At this moment, feeling as I did that the sides of this extraordinary wall were red hot, I plunged my hands into the water to cool them. I drew them back, quickly. The water is boiling, I said. My uncle, the professor, made no reply other than a gesture of despair. Something very like the truth had probably struck his imagination, but 
I could take no share in either what was going on or in his speculations. 